Coming up on this week's show, Brent Hartinger takes us on a cross-country road trip. Plus, we celebrate Rent's 20th anniversary, and Jeff reviews a couple of books. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knauss. Welcome to episode 70 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from jeffadamswrites.com. And I'm Will from willknauss.com. This week's episode is sponsored in part by listeners just like you. We'll have more information on how you can help support the show in just a few moments. Hello, sir. Hello. I'm in a really good mood. I am too. <laughs> I'm perky and ready to go. <laughs> Uh, it's been a good week. Now, now as we usually do in, in every single episode, we live, give a little update on, on how our week has, has went. I just want to inform our listeners that my checkup at the dentist went really well. <laughs> Which is really good, of course. But your checkups always go really well. I'm the one with the bad teeth in the family. I may be a middle-aged, overweight gay dude, but I have got the teeth of a 20-year-old male model. <laughs> and that's a male true. toothpaste model. So take that. Uh, so that's yeah, that was my week. Um, I know, I know uh, your week was a little less hectic. A little bit, yeah. Thank goodness. So how, how did it go? Well, got a, just under seventy five hundred words written for the week, which is under target, but it was writing every single day. It's very very good. Is, Kudos to you. Is good. So yes. I'm happy. So in those words, I finished the first draft of Codename Winger 2, mm-hmm. which I'm very happy about. And then I set it aside so I could start working on the story that I'll submit to Changing on the Fly, uh, the charity anthology that I got to be, get to be a part of. So I started a new hockey story this week. Cool. Um, and somewhere on Mackinac News, uh, that cover got finalized. Yes, it did. It's so pretty. It's really nice, everyone. Yeah, I'm very happy. So there'll probably be a cover reveal sometime in late, late March, early April. Uh, because the co- the the publication did on that's May third, and I don't want to reveal the cover without being able to give people a place to go. You know, click on something to go get it if they want it. That's awesome. You got a cover order. and a release date. Yeah. Now, where can people go to sign up to get a sneaky peek of this fantastic yeah. new cover? If you do want a sneak peek <laughs> of the cover, good job. Because um, I wasn't <laughs> even thinking it, of that. Slid it right in there. Uh, the cover reveal will happen to the folks who get my newsletter. So if you want to get my newsletter, which means you'll get the sneak peek of the Mackinac cover as soon as I can release it, go to jeffadamswrites.com. Big old splashy banner right on the homepage yeah. uh, to sign up for the newsletter. Plus, you'll immediately get a free copy of the ebook for Dancing for Him. So there you go. Cool. Uh, the other thing to point out, uh, just in publishing news this week, is uh, my publisher, JMS Books, who handles the Hat Trick series and some of my shorter, sh- so, blah, blah, some of my short works. Uh, has done a new deal that has uh, the publisher's books going into Kindle Unlimited. Mm-hmm. So if you subscribe to Kindle Unlimited, you now have access to the Complete Hat Trick series, uh, the three novels and short stories. Very nice. Either as individual titles or you can pick up the box set, mm-hmm. uh, plus my shorts for Adventures of Jake Number 1, Rivals, uh, Make the Right Choice, which is a hat trick spinoff. It's like, oh, there's another one in there. Yeah. Uh, those are all now available through Kindle Unlimited. So if that is your reading jam, uh, I invite you to go pick up my titles there. Cool. Yeah. Fantastic opportunity. And more about that is on jeffadamswrites.com as well in a blog post. Awesome. 
Now, uh, as we have been reporting uh, every week in the new year, we have started a Patreon campaign uh, for those who would like to monetarily support the podcast. This week, we would like to give a very big thank you to our newest patrons, Katie, George, and Christina. Welcome aboard. And one of our patrons, Ellen, uh, recently commented that your podcast is a ray of light. Fun and shenanigans in an otherwise miserable time, and I'm happy to be playing a tiny part. Thank you so much, Ellen. Uh, We genuinely appreciate that. And we do try to keep things light and fun every week. Yes. Uh, We are aware of what's going (laughs) on in the outside world. Um, But this show is not necessarily the place to discuss such things. Uh, We, I think, particularly in the past week, uh, I don't know about you, but in social media, I have been seeing the buzzword uh, self-care. Yes. An awful, awful lot. Yes. Um, And it's so important. And even though I think the... the, In, in a relatively short period of time, it's starting to lose its meaning. Uh, it's still a very, very important thing. Yep. Uh, this past week, I have started uh, uh, an exercise routine and some stuff that we can probably get into it in another episode. And it's part of my self-care mm-hmm. uh, and a way to cope with what's going on in this country right now. Yeah, and you also turned off Google News as being the first thing that comes up anytime you pop a browser open. Exactly. Because you don't necessarily need to do that all the time. And you will notice if you're seeing this video feed or you catch one of the pictures, we do have our resist sign together. We resist right back there on the wall. Mm-hmm. As like, it'll always be back there until this madness passes. We also want to say a super, super quick uh, hello and thank you to our friends in New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past weekend was the rally yeah. in uh, the, at Stonewall. At Stonewall for the LGBT Solidarity uh, Rally. Uh uh, Glenda Testone, who's a friend and runs the LGBT Center there, mm-hmm. spoke. Uh, saw her on CNN, which was kind of cool. Uh, but kudos to all of you who braved what looked to be really cold uh, from the <laughs> pictures that we saw uh, for being there. We certainly were standing with you from across the country. Yes. So, you can help support the podcast with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For less than the price of a coffee a month, your pledge helps pay for the cost of producing and distributing the podcast. For those fans who pledge at the silver and gold levels, you'll have the exclusive opportunity to ask questions of our upcoming guests. Now, thank you to everyone who helped us meet our monthly goal. I'm kind of blown away that in our very first month Mm -hmm. of doing this, we met our first initial goal and uh, our stretch goal, which means we will be producing a bonus show in the month of February. So patrons, uh, please go to Patreon and leave a question if you'd like us to answer a, a query that you might have for this very special bonus show. Yes. We'll be recording that next weekend to debut on Valentine's Day, especially for our patrons. Yes, and to note, uh, get your questions in by February 10th, please, which is this coming Friday. Mm-hmm. There's a post right there on the uh, homepage of our Patreon so that you can leave your question. Fantastic. You can get details on becoming a patron at www.patreon.com. I almost had it. Go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. And check it out. Want to hang out with us between shows? Check us out on Facebook. You never know what we might post. News about book sales, bonus video content, and maybe even a live broadcast or two. Like us today at facebook.com slash biggayfictionpodcast and see what we get up to next. 
So one of the things about this past week that was a big deal for me is that the Rent 20th Anniversary Tour played Humboldt State University just a mere 10 miles or so from where we live. <laughs> uh, it played twice, and guess what? I went twice because I am that kind of redhead. Uh, it was so awesome to see the musical again. I hadn't seen it since 2014 uh, when I saw a, a local theater company in Brooklyn actually do the show. Uh, before that, I'd seen Michael Greif's 2012 restaging of the show that he did at New World Stages Off-Broadway in New York. And then I really hadn't seen the original production with its original staging since 2000. I believe it was 2008, if I remember what I looked at earlier this week, uh, which was right as Rent was getting ready to close up on Broadway. Mm -hmm. uh, the show has aged so well, I think. the It's rooted, obviously, in the early to mid-90s uh, with its message about uh, how Bohemia was on the Lower East Side of New York and the AIDS crisis at the time. Uh, but its messages, I think, resonate so well today. Yes, they do. Uh, the cast was just superb. Uh, towards the end of its run, it was difficult for me to go to the show and not find some cast member sticking out and quite not being what I thought they should be after seeing the show more than a dozen times. I think this week, if I counted right, I was 16 by the time we were done on Tuesday, on Wednesday night. Uh, but in this case, the cast was uniformly, I thought, just superb. Uh, you came with me on Wednesday. I did. For your first time to see it in maybe more than, slightly more than a decade. Probably a little more than a decade. I was trying to count in my head. I think I have seen Rent in various incarnations probably five times in my life. Uh, I do enjoy the show. Um, I think your obsession is a little um, intense. <laughs> That's fair. So if I don't express my my love for the show in the passionate way that you do. Um, it's not because I don't like it. I do. I really, really enjoy Rent a lot. And uh, I definitely enjoyed this 20th anniversary tour production. Uh, uniformly, like you said, uh, the cast is excellent. Mm -hmm. uh, everything about the production is really super, uh, incredibly top-notch. Um we won't go into you know what rent is. Uh, hopefully, those of you uh, listening know what rent is all about. Um, if you've never seen rent uh, and this production happens to be in your neck of the woods, I do recommend you check it out because I think it's remarkably true to the original production. Mm -hmm. um, the staging is almost identical. The sets, the costumes, they're all pretty much the same, um, but not in a tired, creaky old way. Um, yeah, that's um, very true. Um, it's a, a, a very m modern... Uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Homage, perhaps? Uh, kind, yeah, it's, no, it's not no. even really that. Okay. It's it's just that they're uh, they've been super super smart in keeping it uh, uh, clean and concise and still very true to the message of the original production. Yeah. So if you've never had the chance to see Rent on Broadway in its original incarnation, this is an incredibly good substitute. <laughs> yeah, it's either this by the way is touring across the country through June. Uh, you can get all the dates at rentontour.net, and that'll be in the show notes also. There is also a DVD that was done of mm -hmm. yes. the closing company on Broadway. So it was shot live on Broadway mm -hmm. with the closing company, and it's also superb Yes, um, as, a, as a memoir of Rent. Mm -hmm. So other than our date night, uh, 
theater. Uh, what else have you been up to this week? So I finished a book this week. Uh, I mentioned last week that I was reading or listening to Wolf Song uh, by T.J. Klune, and I wrapped that up early in the week. Mm-hmm. Such a good book. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, it's this is one of those of TJs that's really hard to talk about without giving too much away. Uh, similar to Murmuration, although I do find it curious that the blurb for this book actually does give up most of the first half of the book, um, just by laying it out. The book is the story of Ox. Who would we meet? Ox. He is a sixteen. Well, actually, we meet him first at twelve, but then he jumps very quickly to sixteen. Uh, he's a young man who's been told by his father that he'll never amount to much, Aww. and that's kind of his expectation out of life. Uh, when he's 16, he meets the boy down the lane, whose name is Joe. Joe is nine, and his family has just moved in down the block. Um, and Joe, we find out very quickly, has not spoken in two years because of some traumatizing events that have happened to him. And when he meets Ox, he speaks for the first time. Uh, and what goes from there is an amazing story that involves werewolves and pack and family and friends and... Yes, there's a romance that goes on there uh, between Ox and Joe as they grow up, but it's really secondary to the to the main plot of this family and friends and pack. Mm. And I can't recommend it enough. You can read more review at jeffandwill.com. It'll be in the show notes. But yeah, it's extraordinary. And I have to say, Kurt Graves, with his um, narration and performance, did an impossibly good job managing both these characters as they grew up across the decade Mm -hmm. and the different stories and all the stuff with the wolves and making there's some very redundant words because you get into their head about just the the things that they share amongst themselves as when they're in their wolf form so there's all these different words that don't make sense necessarily and i don't know how they'd read on a page necessarily but kurt makes all that work Oh, and okay. it's it's really extraordinary. Interesting. So whether you go, I, I highly recommend audio if audio is your thing. But it, otherwise, just pick up this book and be in awe. Cool. Um, yeah. The other book, which I finished a while ago, but I'm bringing up now since we're talking to Brent Hartinger, uh, is the Auto Digmore Difference, uh, which comes out February 21st. Uh, this is a spinoff of his Russell Middlebrook Futon Years books. Picks up right after The Road to Amazing, which was the last in the Russell series. This is the beginning of a series for Otto. Okay. Uh, we met Otto originally in The Order of the Poison Oak. Excellent. Uh, which was back in the YA Russell Middlebrook books. Yeah. Uh, Otto is a gay guy who also is scarred over his face and part of his body because of a fire he was in as a child. Which makes things, you know, gives him a unique point of view on the world for sure, because he has to deal with everybody dealing with his scars. Uh, this picks him up at age 26. He is a sitcom actor on a CW show, which is canceled shortly after he gets back from LA to LA. Uh, and he and Russell end up on a road trip because he's trying to get a movie role and he's kind of chasing the director across the country to get this audition done. <laughs> So it's a great homage to road trip movies, uh-huh. uh, which works so well because both Russell, Russell's a screenwriter, Otto's an actor, so they all have this you know concept of the road movie. Uh, Brent uses some great stuff in terms of uh, just what I would call road movie tropes that we're all used to, whether it's the hitchhiker or the evil, the evil car that comes after you. <laughs> There's so much that's in here. <laughs> and it's really a great growth, growth book for Otto as we really dig into some of Otto's story what that fire was that we'd never heard about before in the previous books. 
so it's really extraordinary. I highly recommend it. Uh, it stands alone very nicely if you haven't read the rest of the Russell books. Uh, but there's no reason not to pick them all up either. Uh, you can read my whole review, jeffandwell.com. The link to it directly will be in the show notes, plus the link to pick it up and do your pre-order on Amazon. Fantastic. So, yeah, I got to talk to Brent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> As a segue right into the yes, interview. Yes, you did. Uh, you know, I've talked to... The show's let me talk to a lot of authors who I'm just uh-huh. major fanboy over. And to get to talk to Brent, I think is the high point so far of the people that we've talked to on the show. Uh, Geography Club was a big impact to me. Uh, The Russell Middlebrook young adult books, um, particularly the first three with Geography Club, Order of the Poison Oak, and what at the time was called Split Screen. It actually has a different title now. Uh, Really heavily influenced me uh, moving towards and writing Hat Trick One, uh, along with a handful of other authors. Books And so to actually get to interview him for the show about Russell and all of these books that he's written in this universe, uh, because he's kind of taken his universe where I've taken the hat trick universe where it's not, it's out, it grows out of young adult into new adult and beyond. Um, so it was a great treat to talk to him. So let's get to that interview. Fantastic. So I'm very excited to welcome Brent Hartinger to the podcast. Brent calls himself a storyteller who thinks... The most important thing for a writer is to get out of the way and just tell the damn story. For the last 20 years, he's made a living writing just about everything that involves words, including novels, screenplays, plays, web content, and even greeting cards. (laughs) These days, he writes in many genres and many different mediums. His latest book, The Otto Digmore Experience, comes out February 21st. Welcome, Brent. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Greeting cards. Where do we find your I, greeting I wrote, card? Uh, your greeting card work. You know, I used to write greeting cards and cartoons, and every now and then, it's been a few years, but for a long time, I would get a royalty check from some cartoon caption that I wrote like 20 years ago. <laughs> Somebody would send me a check, um, but I think all the greeting cards that I wrote are probably off the shelves by this point. You know, and those are all flat fee anyway. Those were like 150 bucks or 200 bucks. But I did it all. I wrote porn for a while even. I, I wow. anything to make a living. That involved words, yeah. Now, of course, you can't really make money off that, I don't think, I guess. Sometimes you can, maybe. <laughs> but let's move on to the, to the real story here, uh, which is the Otto Digmore experience. The Otto Digmore difference. Difference. The Otto oh, Digmore I wrote difference. that down wrong. <laughs> Bad beta reader, since I've even read the beta copy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you haven't seen the jacket yet, because it's not released yet. But yes, that'll be out, uh, that'll be out in February. And so... I wrote this book called Geography Club back in the early aughts with this character named Russell Middlebrook. Um, the first few books were traditionally published. Uh, then when I left HarperCollins, I started self-publishing. I continued the series. Uh, it did surprisingly well. Uh, I sort of hit the sweet spot. I had sort of an existing fan base um, that were eager for these books. Um, and self-publishing was really exploding at the time. So then... I decided to take the character and move him forward, move him out of the early aughts, move him into the present, and grow him up. So this teenage character became a, became a, uh, a new adult character, a 23-year-old character. So I launched a new series called The Futon Years, starring Russell in his 20s. Uh, then I finished that series. That's three-book series. And I decided to write a third series starring Otto Digmore, who was a secondary character in the first two series. It's very, very complicated. But so now Otto is, has his own series. Otto is a burn survivor. He uh, was burned 
in an accident when he was a little kid. Russell met him at summer camp. Uh, he's got facial scars. And I really liked this character when I first came, when I first wrote him back in 2004. I felt like it was something sort of new and different for gay lit. Um, I actually got a bit of crap at the time because people, some people, you know, the young adult community were sort of offended by equating a burn survivor with a gay person. You know, how dare, you know, a burn survivor doesn't choose his, his disability. Uh, gay, being gay is a choice. And I kind of feel, I mean, not to put my, pat myself on the back, but I kind of feel like I was a little ahead of my time, you know, in terms of the diversity. Um, so I don't feel like the character really got the attention I feel like it deserves, like I would have liked it to get. So it's great now to write the character again, to go back to the character and give him his own series. Um, and I feel like now is really the time with all the talk about uh, diversity issues and sort of uh, different, you know, we're all sort of sick of the white middle class gay teenager or gay character. I know I am. And so this is sort of a new spin on uh, an old story, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I like there's some reference made in the book even to the TV series Speechless. And oh, I think uh-huh, it kind of yeah. connects into that in the modern culture really well. Yeah. My character, Otto, sees himself as disabled. You know, he's a disabled activist. And he's now working as a TV actor. He's got a role on a TV sitcom like the, the Cerebral Palsy character in Speechless. Uh, so the books exist in the world of modern day Hollywood and, and Otto, who has this really, really small role on this TV show, is sort of starting to get attention for himself. And I can talk about, you know, these issues, these disability issues, these diversity issues, um, being gay and closeted in Hollywood and, and sort of my experiences in Hollywood and being a writer and knowing all these actors. And um, I really like writing about that. And my readers, so the previous books, the Futon Years, Russell Middlebrook, who's now, like I said, he's now in his 20s, decided to become a screenwriter and he eventually moved to Hollywood. So I was able to write. Um, It's not exactly my own story. The books are not exactly my own story, but they're informed by my story as a gay person trying to make it as a screenwriter. Um, And, you know, so... I really like, like I said, the books are not autobiographical per se, but they're informed by my experiences. And that's always, you know, I'm obviously really interested in things that have happened to me. Um, <laughs> and, and so, and so the response was really good. Um, you know, the books sold, sold well and people seem to like them. So uh, people ask me, how long are you going to keep doing the series? And I say, as long as people keep buying the books, I will. And I, you know, maybe I will return to Russell, presumably, you know, in his thirties, uh, who knows? As long as I live, Russell's a few years younger than me. So um, if I live to be 130, then, then I will do Russell's whole life. <laughs> Russell the century years. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> yeah. Is Otto going to be a trilogy like Russell was? So Otto is at least going to be a two-book series. It's funny. I am a, I am a plotter. I'm an outliner. I'm not uh, – George R. R. Martin calls them – I don't like pantser and plotter because – Pantser seems it, it disrespects the whole concept of of plotting it. I like Gardner versus Architect. You know that you you throw the seeds and see what comes up, or you have a blueprint. Um, I feel like that gives them both equal right. But anyway, I'm uh, more of an architect than a gardener, recognizing that every writer is a little of each. Um, but ironically, with all of these Russell books, I have not planned out the series. I, I plan out each individual book. 
but I don't plan out the series. I don't know what's going to happen next. It's almost like what happens to the characters happens to the characters. So I have a really vague with Russell with the futon years. I had a really vague outline, and I I knew where it was going to end up. And and you've read the third book, so you know you know where it, I don't want to I don't want to do I don't want to spoil anything. But uh, with Otto, I know there will be at least two books, and I have a vague idea what's going to happen in the next book. I have no idea what's going to happen if there is a third book, and it partly depends on I'm giving myself flexibility because it sort of depends on how the books sell you know i mean i i respond to what people want sure. people like the books i will i will write more um but it's at least a two book series yeah that's exciting because i i do want to see what comes next uh Good. for Otto. because <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah, he was to. one of my favorite geography club characters too because he was different yeah right he had this it, other thing going on that wasn't just him being a gay teen that's right it feels like uh, when I came up with the idea, I thought, oh, I don't feel like I've read this before. And, um, and then even with the other Digmore difference, it's like, it's not just about him being a 26 year old man with facial scars. Make, he's an actor in Hollywood just sort of makes it even more interesting. You know, it's like, okay, I really haven't read that. Um, and so I don't know, it's sort of the mandate that I set for myself with every book. I don't ever want to repeat myself. I want to, I don't, for every book I write, I want to tell something new. I want to tell a new story. And I don't want ever to feel like uh, I'm working on fumes. I'm just going back to the same well. I always want the experience to be a surprise both for me and for the readers. I want them to feel like, oh, okay, this is something new. I don't ever want to repeat myself. I'm not saying, I, I'm not saying I've always lived up to my mandate, but that is, that's my personal mandate. Going back to Geography Club, what was the inspiration that kicked off this whole, you know, empire that you've got of, of, of stories <laughs> guess, now? guess it is sort of an empire. Um, so it was two things. I was a gay teen, and I worked with gay teens in my early 20s, and I founded – we were – literally the third GSA in the world, as far as we know, um, back in 1990. Uh, and this was before the, even the concept of the GSA existed. Yeah. Um, and I was one of the first gay youth groups. And uh, I remember, so it was my job to interview these kids for the first meeting. And I remember I interviewed five different kids. It was like, you know, a kid from a pickup truck, cowboy hat, and a drag queen who'd been kicked out, was living on the streets as as a prostitute, and sort of this prom queen. And I remember interviewing them all and thinking, these people have nothing in common. This is crazy. What are we doing? They're, we're going to do a support group for these people that have nothing in common. Of course, then they get together. And it's magic. And even though superficially they're all completely different, they all have this sense that if their parents and their friends knew who they really were, then they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be their friends. And and it was magic. And and that struck with me. And that became the scene, the you know, one of the opening scenes in Geography Club when they formed the Geography Club. Um, so that was part of it, literally based on my own experiences. Uh, and then I think the second part of it was. It was a response to what I saw was a really negative vibe among gay literature. And I get it. I understand. I think um, in response to HIV AIDS, there was an idea that I want to tell my truth. I want to tell the gritty, realistic reality of what it means to be a gay man in the 90s or in the 80s. But for me, a lot of it was... I found a lot of gay literature in the 80s and 90s to be really negative. I, 
Michael and I, I don't know if, can I use swear words? We called it asshole fiction. That it's like I would read these books and I would think, this guy's an asshole. You know, it's like I get the point. World has crapped all over him and now he's self destructive and he's shitting all over everybody. And, I, you know, I mean, I understand that that's a certain person's truth and, and that's fine. But I got tired of reading the same story over and over again because I didn't feel like I was an asshole and I didn't feel like the gay men that I knew were assholes. I feel like they were, um, you know, generally nice guys and mm -hmm. trying to do the right thing. So my book was a response to what I saw was a really negative trend, you know, that we must show the see me underside, which is a response to what came before that. I understand all that. But my book was a response to what I saw. I felt like the voice that was not the book. Every, they say, write the book that, that, uh, that you want to read. That's what I did. Um, and it was interesting. I didn't intend it to be a young adult novel. I don't know what I thought really, um, but my agent sort of pitched it as a young adult novel, and then it became sort of upon rewriting, it became a young adult novel. And and I kind of think I was again not to pat, point my, pat myself on the back. I kind of think I was a little prescient. You know, now I think with the rise of male male romance and self publishing. That's, you know, likable main characters is a big thing. Everybody wants the likable main characters. Well, that was not such a big thing. Back back in the early aughts in the 90s, uh, it, it, there weren't so many likable gay characters. So I kind of feel like I saw a need. Um, I, I think it was just random chance that I, you know, I've tried to predict many other trends and I'm never right. But in that particular trend, I sort of think I predicted where the audience wanted to go, where the readership wanted to go. Definitely the book... Um, hit a nerve you know it, it it struck at exactly the right time it was mm -hmm. sort of nobody expected it to do anything um harper collins picked it up it had been rejected by 38 publishers finally you know a lot of editors tried to buy it um but they couldn't get it through acquisitions finally harper collins did but you know in publishing there's there's a lead title for every there are three seasons in publishing there's a lead title a second lead title and a third lead title and i like to say that geography club was the caboose it was literally the least important book of the whole season um and they published it like you know in, in february or march some dead time of the year and it was an instant hit it went into a third printing by the end of the second week and, and it speaks to you know i was lucky i've since published other books um and i've expected them to to do i thought you know I've heard a lot of writers back then, a lot of writers would complain, you know, it's so hard to get attention for your book. And I think, really? It's not that hard. It's really <laughs> easy, you know, for me. And now I understand, no, it is that hard. It's really hard. Um, I was lucky. I was lucky that I caught a wave. But anyway, so that was exciting. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and I think it holds up well even today because there are still kids who go through this exact same thing, even, what are we, like 15 years out now? Give or take. Yeah, I think, it, you know, at the time I was trying to write I think I imagined that I was writing sort of a timeless book, uh, you know, about the gay experience. And now looking back, it is a very, it's a book of its time. You know, it's very much a book of its time, you know, the whole closeted idea. And that's the experience of a lot of gay teens. If nothing else, they are aware that other gay people exist, you know, because of the internet mm -hmm. and all of that. But in some ways, I think you're right. I think the experience of feeling different and feeling, you know, you can't be who you really are and, and questioning, you know, all of those things, those are universal themes, the search for identity, the search for friendship, the search for love, those are universal themes. Um, and I think, you know, the book had a sense of humor. The book, I tried to be funny. I tried to make, you know, I've always said being a gay teen, there's, it's bitter and sweet. You know, there's, there's the bitter, especially back then. There's a lot of the, the, the bad stuff, but there's also a lot of funny stuff. And the idea that, you know, you're a gay teenager and you have to shower with all 
the, you have to go into the locker room and shower with all these naked guys. On some level, that's pretty funny, you know. On some level, that's humorous. That this guy who is attracted to other guys has to, you know, has to or gets to or whatever, you know. It's not that it's a good experience for gay teenage closeted gay teenagers, but that's how I opened the book, you know. That sort of the humorous aspect of being gay and trying to hide it and yet having to shower with all these hot guys in, in the locker room, you know. So, mm-hmm. bittersweet. <laughs> when you did Geography Club, did you did you have the series in mind or did it just kind of evolve out that way because of the, the book was a success and you had more story to tell? Uh, so, I remember I said to my editor when – my editor was the reason why I got published. Steve Frazier was his name and now he's an agent and he's literally the reason he put his total – career on the line and said, you know, I want to publish this book. And they said, well, it's not going to sell anything, but we'll do it anyway because you want to publish it. Um, and so he's he's really the reason it got published. And I remember um, – so he was really excited and other people in-house were excited, uh, but nobody thought it was going to sell. Everybody wanted it to sell, but they – and I remember I, I said to Steve before publication, I said, well, I'd like to write a sequel – and he, you know, I'd like to do this, you know, I've got this idea for a sequel. And he said, well, generally we, we only publish sequels to books that are successful. So let's wait and see, <laughs> you know, uh, and I sort of put the cart before the horse, but on some level, I think I saw not necessarily as a series, but I definitely wanted to, I wanted to keep writing. I had, I, and it was not hard. It's never been hard to come up with stories for Russell. Um, he's very personal for me. Um, I think he's, you know, he's not me. He's got my sensibility. He's got maybe my sense of humor. Um, and he's got a bunch of really quirky friends like me. I mean, that's very much me. I mean, his friends are very much my life. And, you know, the subsequent books, I did. I am a screenwriter. I did have those experiences. So it is loosely based on my life um, and the sensibility, my, my own sensibility. And I guess for that reason, it's always easy to... Uh, Come up with new stories. Mm-hmm. So, kind of circling back to Russell's futon years and, and Otto's new book, as you were preparing to like move these characters into their adulthood, did things crop up that you kind of didn't expect? That the characters lead you certain places? That like what was you know like what is that? What's happening? Well, so like I said before, the original it's called the Russell Middlebrook series, and that's four books. So then when I when I moved the characters, well, I thought. I didn't want to have to keep writing Russell in the aughts because the world had changed so much and there are things I wanted to talk about. So when I moved the characters forward into the present, and now it is in present time, I thought, well, why not embrace that? I mean, these books were self-published, so they are basically released within six months of my writing them, four months of my writing them. So I thought, well, this will be interesting that I can actually write them in real time. So I can write about prep. I can, you know, Russell can, can... can deal with the issue of, well, what does prep mean for a gay man at 23? Uh, what does it mean uh, to, to, to date in 2014? So now, in a way, the books are sort of time capsules to what's going on. So the first one, The Thing I Didn't Know I Didn't Know, said in 2014. The next one's 2000, 2015, 2016. And, and now, The Otto Digmore Difference is set right after the road to amazing, which is the one set in 2016. They can talk about the election. They can talk about all these things that are happening. You know, the mandate in traditional publishing, they always say, well, don't ever talk about, you know, music or movies because it'll make it dated. And I'm like, well, what's so bad about that? I mean, it is 
that in a particular time. And we all talk about these things. I mean, reality is we go to certain movies and yeah, it's true. They are going to be dated in a sense in that they are set in a particular place in time. But I look at them as sort of time capsules. And when you're talking about now I'm old enough to, to understand that gay history is a constantly changing, vibrant thing. And I actually find that really interesting. I, you know, it's like, where were we two years ago and where are we now? And just with regard to prep, I mean, the world is massively different. And mm-hmm. that's sort of interesting for me to document. That's a really that's the concern of a writer as much as anything else. So um, that's been really interesting. There were, um, I, with with regard to, uh, uh, so the second book, the, the three books in the Futon years, it's The Thing I Didn't Know, I Didn't Know. The second book is Barefoot in the City of Broken Dreams. And then the third book is The Road to Amazing. Barefoot in the City of Broken Dreams, I said before Russell becomes a screenwriter, he moves to Los Angeles to try to make it as a screenwriter. And that is, as close to my experiences as any, any book I've ever written, you know, that basically the story of that book is the story of my, you know, I moved to Los Angeles at one time and Russell had a lot of the same experiences. And I had an experience when I moved to Los Angeles, again, I don't want to give too much away, but I had an experience when I'm living and I'm thinking, Oh my God, this is, this would make such a good story. I have to write this someday. And I didn't quite know how it was going to fit in. And it wasn't until, you know, 15 years later, you know, I had since written these Russell books that it's like, Oh, you know, I knew instantly I wanted to write that story. Uh, you know, I obviously I changed it a bit for the book, had to adapt it a bit for the book, but um, that's sort of interesting too. And then the third book is also based on my own experiences. Um, so, you know, like I said before, I, I want to do something. I want a new writing challenge for me, but hopefully for the reader too, they will see something. Oh, I don't feel like I've read this before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I felt that way with each of the the three uh, futon years and with Otto. There was a little something different to look at in each of those. It was also, you know, so the first books, the first three books were traditionally published. And, uh, you know, so it's not that publishers were discouraging you from sex, from discouraging me, censoring me or anything like that. But there were sort of standards and practices that were commonly acceptable in traditional publishing back in the aughts. And so the, you know, I lived in sort of a fade to black world, at least in young adult. Mm-hmm. And even then I got a lot of crap, you know I mean? My books were banned and I got a lot of controversy and I would often think to myself, really, you know, I mean, there are these other books that are fairly explicit that are heterosexual books and you're upset about my book because I fade to black because, you know, just because it's gay. So with these newer books, I was able to say, well, you know, we live in a new era. They're not young adult books. These are new adult books. These were books for adults. They are labeled as such and they're self-published and I can write for my fans. And so I could write about sex. And, uh, that was incredibly, it's like once I decided that it was, you know how you, you make, you're a writer. So, you know, it's like you make a choice and you go, is this the right choice for this story? And then you start writing. It's like, Oh my God, this is such the right choice. And you know, <laughs> you made the right. And it's like, I don't think they're prurient, but, um, and, and I don't think, it, you know, I mean, it's sort of, it, it, for me, it was very satisfying how sort of seamlessly the sex fit into the story. Uh, not that, I mean, I'm all for gratuitous sex, too. This idea that sex can't be gratuitous, hell no. I mean, you know, some <laughs> books, I'm fine with gratuitous sex. But uh, I was pleasantly surprised that the sex was not gratuitous, that, um, in fact, it fit sort of seamlessly into the story. And I had never, that's not something I'd written a lot about uh, as a young adult writer. I had not been very explicit 
Uh, so that was sort of like I got a new uh, a new color on my palette that I was able to work with. Nice. I, I mean, I did write porn before, but that's not the same thing. Um, so that was fun too. That was an interesting challenge. That was a new interesting challenge, and and uh, uh, let me suffice to say, my readers were very very appreciative. They that's something that they've really respond, responded to in a, in a big way, um, and so that makes me happy. <laughs> God, we all want to sell books, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so you've got another book out there that we should talk about called Three Truths and a Lie, uh, which is a mystery uh, and was yep. also recently nominated for an Edgar Award uh, in their YA That's category. Right. Congratulations. Thank uh, you very much. That's very exciting. So uh, I'm a hybrid author now. I publish both independently and I also still publish books traditionally and Three Truths and a Lie was a book that was published by Simon & Schuster this summer. And the publisher – so I'm really proud of this book. Uh, this is sort of a very dark and very edgy uh, psychosexual thriller. You know, I said before, back in the aughts, there were certain mandates when it came to sex. Well, that's sort of changed now. Um, and so I wrote this book. It's not just that it's – because it's not erotic necessarily. It's Like I said, it's very dark. There's some very dark and weird stuff. Um, and I like that I can write this book that is a – it's a puzzle box thriller. You know, It's like a horror thriller mystery book. And it's got two gay guys as the lead characters and then some other characters who are not gay. But it's not about the gay experience. It's not about coming out. It's not about being closeted. They are gay incidentally gay and yet so they're incidentally gay but at the same time it's sort of integral to the plot their relationship uh and some of sort of the weird things that happen four teenagers are spending a weekend at a remote cabin in the woods they play the game through truth and a lie you know where you show how good of a liar you are and then as the weekend progresses it turns out somebody is harassing them bad things are happening and then the question must be asked is it somebody outside the cabin or is it one of the four teenagers within the cabin? And we all know, you know, they're good liars. And so nothing is exactly what it seems. And I really liked, I really like that we are at a place in our history that, you know, you can write a book like this and it can be published by a mainstream publisher like Simon and Schuster. Um, and they were really excited about it. Uh, and, and it can, you know, be published to a mainstream audience and it's not just gay, but it's like sort of, weirdly darkly gay and i don't have to worry that's another thing you know i don't have to worry about who are these characters are going to be role models are going to be misinterpreted you know i don't want to do dark negative energy for fear that it will be misinterpreted by so and so and and i don't want to make that you know teen librarians have enough of a problem as it is getting these books into their their books as well now we have this freedom that we can sort of explore some of these dark and edgy themes and that's really exciting so that said the book came out um so getting sort of the legitimacy of the Edgar nomination um, was incredibly gratifying. It's like they get it. Uh, I can compete. Even though it's a gay title, I can compete with the best of them. Um, and so I'm very excited. That was that was a nice surprise. And, and um, I know my publisher was happy too. And I, I want to keep them happy. Of course, yeah. <laughs> what attracts you to writing young adult, new adult titles? You seem to really have that – be in that lane – Regardless of like the subgenre, whether it's mystery or however you would classify the Russell books. Um, well, you said in your intro that I see myself as a storyteller, and by that I mean 
I like stories. I like a beginning, a middle, and an end. I like plot. I like things that move. I like strong voices. I like uh, engaging you. Get to the goddamn point. And I, I'm not a fan of literary fiction for the most part. I mean, obviously there are exceptions. I don't make any sweeping generalization. I read some literary fiction, but so many books, you know, they're so soft and so quiet. And frankly, they don't really have a point. You know, they're all atmosphere and beautiful language and blah, 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 blah. And that has never really interested me as a writer. I think back when I was starting out, at first, I didn't understand why my agent was pitching me as the young adult novelist. And now in retrospect, it's like, well, I get it because this is a genre. This is one of the genres that was sort of quick, one of the first to dis- to rediscover plot. You know, mm. um, it seems like postmodernism, it was deconstructing plot. And it was all about all these things. And it's like when you're writing for teenagers who are sort of by definition reluctant readers, you need to get to the point. You need to have a plot. You need to move. They've got all these other, they've got video games and you know, movies and TV and computer screens. And it's like, you cannot dick around. You need to like tell the goddamn story. And so it's, it's very much a good fit for me. I also, I have always liked teenagers. I, in a way, I, I don't know that I ever grew up. I, I'm older now and all my friends have kids, some of whom have teenagers. And to this day, when they complain about their teenagers, secretly, no matter, even though I'm hearing it from my adult friend's point of view, I always side with the teenager. I don't even know the teenager's point of view, and I always think, well, yeah, but you're missing the, what the teenager. I imagine what the teenager would say, and I always think of the adult is wrong. So in a lot of ways, I think I have a, a teenage sensibility. You know, I'm, I, it's, this is hard to say in an age of Trump, but I think I am fundamentally an optimist. I, am, um, I, I don't like negativity. I don't like dourness. It's like if, if it's that much of a hassle – you know, if, if it's that much of a struggle, what's the point? It's like we have one short, brief time on this earth. I'm not going to be unhappy. I'm not going to be miserable. Like I said, that's hard to say in an era of Trump. Um, but I'm going to try to say as much as possible. And I'm going to try to I'm going to try to have some goddamn optimism. And and that's, I think, you know, what attracts me to younger people, that they are not set in their ways. They can see possibility. And I mean, that excites me. Like I said, I think I get that. I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, at the same time, I get the angst. I think I understand the angst. Uh, I think I get the ennui. But that's the thing about that everybody misses, that most adults, I, they, when they stereotype teenagers, they always say, they always focus on the angst and the, and the, and the depression and I always say, well, yeah, that, but that's only half of it. Teenage years, it's an era of extremes. And yeah, the angst, the depression, that's extreme. But the high, it's the low low and the high highs. And uh, that's as much of the teenage years as the lows. The highs, the optimism, the driving around, the back of your friend's pickup truck with the wind blowing through your hair, which I don't have anymore. Um, but I remember that. And those are some of the best, even though I was a closet gay teenager in the 80s, which is the worst possible time, um, I still, I still experience that sense of openness and freedom and possibility and optimism, uh, in addition to all the negative stuff and the fear and all of that. Um, and I, I never forgot that. And I think that's true. That's as true for teenagers today as it was for me. And I really love that. I love that sense of possibility and openness. I don't like defeatism. I don't like people who just give up. Um, that's kind of like the opposite of life in my, my mind. And so anyway, that's, that's my long meandering answer your question. I get the sensibility. I like the sensibility. You know, it, it turns me on. Well, it really rings true, especially for me in those, in the four that I've recently read, it especially rings true in uh, 
Road to Amazing and in Otto Digmore Difference, that optimism and pulling together to make it all work and it was fun you know that was an interesting challenge so russell's a millennial and i had to write from the point of view of millennial well i'm not a millennial i have a lot of millennial friends um but that was really that was a really fun challenge just getting the mind of a character who's you know x years number younger than i am um and i knew i wanted to end up in an optimistic place you know i mean i wanted to start at a lower place and he ends up at a because that is, I think, that was my experience of the 20s, that, you know, it is overwhelming, but eventually you figure it out. You know, mm-hmm. there is, there are answers to these questions that, that you're asking. Um, and I'm old enough to know that now, you know, that you ask these questions and they haunt you, but there are answers, even if the answers aren't necessarily what you, th- the answer's not necessarily what you thought, mm-hmm. but there are answers. And it's like, you know, The Road to Amazing, it's about relationships. And it's about commitment and all of that. And the answer is not what you expect. It wasn't what I expected. But there is an answer. And it's not necessarily the answer forever. But there's an answer mm-hmm. uh, that, that I got to explore. And that was, you know, and then it, there was, an, you know, with the series, you know, beginning, middle, and end with the individual books. But then with the series, um, there was an ending. There was mm-hmm. an ending point. I felt like I could let the story go, let the character go, and then come back to it later. Yeah. So, professional content creator that you are, what's your typical <laughs> kind of day look like with writing and all the other ancillary things that go with it? Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? You know, especially podcasters, you know how much work. It looks so effortless, and it's so not. There's so much prep work. Um, so, I used to be sort of, when I was in my 20s, I used to be sort of a classic, sort of artistic personality that I was, I'm a night owl and I would sort of set my own, I would set my own hours and I would work and work and work and then it would collapse and I would work all night and I would get in a writing frenzy. And, and that, <laughs> I couldn't, couldn't hack that because, you know, it's not healthy. And, you know, I'd work until I would literally drop from exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, you know, and also there's this, you have all this freedom, you know, you know I've been writing since I was uh, 21, um, since I graduated from, from college. This is what I've devoted my life to. And, you know, you think, ah, I set my own hours, I have all this freedom, which is great, except nobody else has freedom. You know, you're the only one, you know, yeah, you can go to a movie, but there's nobody, nobody to go to a movie with because everybody else is in school or working. So eventually... I did sort of have to conform, and I did. I now do conform to. A, I only work five days a week. I work during the week. I take the weekends off. I don't even answer email on the weekends. I don't look at a computer, um, and I get you know. I but I work a full day. I work a full day, five days a week. I get up. Uh, I read my blogs. I answer my email, and then I work whatever I'm working on. I'm envious of Stephen King. Uh, who gets up and you know famously writes for four hours every morning and then he's done by noon, asshole. Um, and then he's got the rest of the day. I, I don't. It takes me a while because I'm a night owl. It takes me a while to get going. So I first half of the day I do all the 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 business work, the business yeah. side, communication, and dealing with fans, all of that. Uh, and then the afternoon comes and I do the actual writing. And if I can get like Stephen King, I probably – I mean four – you know this. Four hours is incredibly exhausting. Um, but if you are in focus, you can get a lot done in four hours. And then you know, my, my husband, Michael Jensen, who you interviewed and who I know you know well, um, he's also a writer. And we live near Green Lake in Seattle. And at the end of every day, we walk around Green Lake, which is two miles. Um, and so we have this beautiful – 
uh, buffer between our work life and our personal life. And then we come home and we read our books or make go out, make dinner. Um, and so it's you know sometimes, especially in an age of Trump, as I said, you know sometimes you think, oh my God, uh, the world is is going to hell and it's all crazy. But at the same time, sometimes we sort of have to pinch ourselves. And I mean, you know, bad things happen. We expect a book to sell and it doesn't sell or a movie deal doesn't come through and or you get a bad review. You know, there are a zillion bad things. I like to say my job as a writer is to be a professional object of criticism. People criticize me for a living. That's what I do for a living. And I get that. I'm okay with that. I can leave it any time. I'm choosing to do this. I'm okay with it. But at the same time, you know, it's hard. It's frustrating. The life of the artist is a frustrating one. And, you know, we're always struggling to make a living because it's hard. It's hard to make money doing what you love. It always it always will be. But that said, sometimes we have to stop and pinch ourselves and say, wow, we get to do what we love. And we live near this beautiful lake. And the, we, have our, we get to do what I have dreamed of doing my whole life and people pay me to do it and that's incredibly flattering incredibly wonderful and so sometimes you know more often than we should we have to remind ourselves wow a lot of things have gone right for us uh a lot of things have gone wrong but that's just life but uh at the same time you know we're really lucky that we're able to do what we do and yeah so what do we have to look forward from you in 2017 you're starting off you know here in february with otto's First book, what's to come that you can tell us about? So, Auto Dig More Difference comes out in February. Uh, then I have a couple of books with my agent who I am hoping she will sell soon. So, well, there will be, but of course, it takes so long for traditional books um, to be published. So, that, that probably won't be till 2018, 2019, and nothing is under contract yet anyway. So, I want to write the second auto book. But I also, in between, I want to write a, uh, a movie script. I want to write a micro script. I want to write, uh, in addition to doing a short film, I want to do sort of like a lean and mean micro budget film that my buddies and I can maybe, you know, feature film that we can do for, you know, under $50,000 or something. Um, so I don't know what that is yet, but I, I, uh, I, I'm intrigued by this idea, you know. Um, there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Blue Ruin, where this guy and his buddies wrote a script around locations that um, that they owned, like one of them owned a junkyard and one of them owned a remote cabin in the woods. And they wrote this script, and you, you should see the movie. They made it for thirty thousand uh, bucks. Then he went on to do Green Room this year, which I didn't really like, but Green Room was with Patrick Stewart. You know, that was a five million dollar budget. It was Anton or, or uh, Yelchin's last movie. Um, but the fact is, you know, we live in an era where you can make these incredible looking movies for very, very little money. And um, so I said before, I was frustrated by what's going on with the movie business. So I just want to make a lean and mean um, feature film. So that's my other project. I want to see if I can squeeze it in, writing it, just writing it, getting the ball rolling, squeeze it in between the next Otto Digmar book. And uh, and then I'm sure something else will come along. I usually I can I can usually hack three projects a year so like two novels and a screenplay um which is you know pretty good i mean i feel like i'm a pretty prolific writer uh so that's so it remains to be seen exactly what the third project will be whether it'll be another book or um or the the screenplay but you know i always got stuff going on <laughs> professional content creator you have to 
Yep, yep, absolutely, absolutely. So what's the best way for folks to keep up with you online so they can you know, know about all this stuff as it happens? So I'm on Facebook. I have a fan page on Facebook. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. You can friend me on Facebook, which is a little different than following, but probably you'll do both. Um, you can send me an email. Um, I'm also on Instagram, but I'm not there very often. Um, and uh, I guess that's it. I don't give out my phone number, and occasionally people show up at my door, but I don't. That's not good. I don't approve <laughs> that's of that. That's a little too much, I think. Showing up at the door. <laughs> that's too. That's too. I do have an ongoing policy that if you are willing to come to my neighborhood, I will meet you for coffee. I don't tell you where I live, but I will meet you for coffee. So if you want to meet with me and you're in Seattle, drop me an email. Um, and if I don't have to walk more than a couple blocks, um, and I've I've uh, I've met dozens of people that way, and I also do a fair bit of conference work and public speaking, so I announce that on my website. So if you want to meet me in person, I do a lot of that. Cool. Yep. We will link to all that and all the books uh, in the show notes, so people can find it. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a blast talking to you. Thank you, Jeff. You good questions and uh, great, great podcast. I love that you are devoting all this time to gay, specifically gay books, and that you do pay attention to indie books because you know, as you know, it's hard to get attention. It's the one thing we don't have a lot of. Don't have a lot of. We still struggle as gay as gay content creators. I think we all still struggle. So it's great you're giving us a voice. So there's more to Brent's interview than what we were able to get to inside uh, this episode. So you're going to find 15 more minutes of Brent where we talk about uh, possible spinoffs from Men and Gunner, uh, Geography Club's film version, and Brent's podcast, The Media Carnivores. Look for that on YouTube in the feed or in your podcast feed. You'll see a bonus for episode number 70. Can a backstage flirtation lead to real-life romance? That's the question in Love's Opening Night, the gay romance novella by Jeff Adams. Jeremy Steele is a veteran Broadway performer. For his latest role, he's dancing alongside a man he's fantasized about for years, TV star Ty Beaumont. Jeremy knows better than to get involved with a castmate, but when Ty has trouble learning the complicated choreography, Jeremy offers to lend a hand. When a rehearsal kiss turns into something more, Jeremy can't help but wonder what a celebrity like Ty could ever see in a Broadway chorus boy like him. Will a relationship with his crush make it past previews? Or can it become a long-running hit? Love's Opening Night by Jeff Adams is available at dreamspinnerpress.com, amazon.com, and other ebook retailers. Pick up yours now. All right, I think that's going to do it for this week. Mm-hmm. Coming up in episode number 71, Jay from Joyfully Jay will be here to talk about this spring's theme week on her website, plus reviews of some books that she has been reading. Lots of good stuff to look forward to. Yeah, we had a good time with that uh, interview with her. Uh, that was fun. We've already recorded it, so I know what she said, and it was a good time. Ooh, I can't wait. Yeah. All right, so tune in next week, guys. Uh, until then, keep reading. We'll see you next week. For detailed show notes and the complete episode backlist, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday on all major podcast distributors and YouTube. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 